0: As the hungry and the pining and the poor, we come before a feast of the Word of God from Galatians chapter 1. We're going to pick up the reading here, chapter 1, beginning verse 10. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. Let's give attention to God's holy word. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among many people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said. He who used to persecute us. Is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God. Because of me. The grass withers. And the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Hmm. Father, we believe that. That the grass will wither, the flower will fade, but your word will stand forever. The Apostle Paul believed that. We know that he's with you in spirit. He's glorified, enjoying the pleasures of being at your right hand, and the gospel that he preached, we preach here today. And we pray, Father, something of the confidence and the, the strength and the power of that same gospel sent on the wings of the Spirit would have its impact upon our hearts and our lives together right now. Come and send that holy hound and let him speak to us words of life And bring back, as it were, people who are sleeping and slumbering and, yes, even spiritually dead. Bringing us back to life. Right now we ask it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, speaking of bringing back to life, I think my mic is working. That's pretty awesome. Thank you, sound crew, for taking care of us. Nathaniel said right before we began, he says, it's just that kind of weekend, isn't it, where the sound goes out. Because he knows my story. I you know, took off on Friday to go to Denver and was there for you know, a little over 24 hours. And as I was going through security, I'm not one of those TSA pre-check like some of you. So I'm going through all of the security lines, pull out my laptop, put it in the bin, right, Rosalind, my daughter's going with me. She's kind of making her way down another path and making sure she's got everything and we're gonna you know, get, get through this without you know, something happening. Well, something did happen. I forgot to get my computer out of that bin. And so we're halfway to Denver and I think it's a great time to put some finishing touches on the sermon for Sunday. And there is no computer in my bag. And so I land in Denver, and I think, well, you know, the security, they're going to have it, and they don't have it. They don't know where it is. No one's turned in a computer. And so this is going to be interesting, I think, to myself. And I uh, get a little message yesterday afternoon from a man in China who has my computer. <laughs> yeah, you can't make this stuff up, is there, I mean... Oh, and so he's he asked how he could return it to me. We're working on getting it happen. I don't know the whole, I don't know the story to be continued. I'll keep you posted on what happened. But you know, I I get home about nine forty five, whatever last night. I think I, I need to get started on this thing for tomorrow and see what I can remember. And so I punched down some things. But um, this morning I get a second message from him, and he says is there anything that you really need on the computer right now? I'm like, well, in about 30 minutes, I'm about to preach this thing that I could have used a while back. So it's just that kind of weekend, you see. Sound goes out. As I was thinking last night, rethinking, rewriting this message for today, I, in some way, you know, God's in control, right? Right? I mean, this is his providence. He has a reason for all that he does. And I begin to reflect on that. And one of the things I begin to reflect on was this theme of testimony. We're seeing here in Galatians chapter 1 the testimony of the apostle Paul. But I just come from Denver where there was a testimony. There was a testimony of tremendous power. This wonderful conversation with Jackson Thomas, if you weren't here at the beginning of the service, one of our members was in a terrible car accident about three weeks ago in Denver, still there. It's was very touch and go for a while and he's doing so much better, I'm so pleased to report. We were able to have this wonderful conversation in his uh, rehab hospital room for about an hour and a half, opening up the Word of God, talking, sharing together and one of the things that was so clear was how the Lord had given him a heart, a soul, to receive the suffering that he was passing through, in the the midst of it. Um, Here he was with, you know, 40 staples just out of his head and 27 just out of his arm that had been reconstructed. And here he was telling me how grateful, how thankful he was for the Lord had spared him. And now he's telling me stories of those whom he can't wait to meet with and and even those where he said, you know, there's that friend that I need to kind of circle back with that I I probably didn't treat quite as well as I should have. And I I don't ever leave my my sisters without telling them I love them uh, in ways that I hadn't before. And we talked about the gift of a second lease on life that the Lord has given him. In a sense, bringing him back from what looked like the dead. And we, one of the things that we agreed on together was that this is God's story. This is his testimony. I mean, Jackson was going out west to enjoy the beautiful landscape and take some wonderful pictures. And the Lord, uh, it was as, as it were, he stood in front of him on the Damascus Road, not in quite the same way that Paul experienced, but he certainly had a different story that he wanted to tell in Jackson's life. It wouldn't be one that Paul would have thought he wanted to tell when Jesus stood before him in Acts chapter 9 and he was struck blind in that moment and thought he was going to die as he experienced the glory of God. I'm sure that Jackson, when he finally came to, didn't think that there was going to be an amazing story that was going to unfold in the way that it's unfolding. But the Lord moves in mysterious ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Our lives are his lives. You know, this word testimony is from the Greek word testament, where we get the old and new testament. In some way, shape, or form, we could say the entirety of your Bible, you know what it is? Testimony. It's testimony. Now, when we think of testimony, we often think of it as something that's extremely personal It's certainly personal, certainly not less than that. This is the personal word of God to his people. He's speaking from his heart, as it were, to us. He wants us to know these things about him and the story of redemption. It's very personal, but it's not just a perspective, it's truth. That's where we get the word witness very much tied into the language of testimony. The word witness has this idea of legal weight. It's something that could hold up in a court of law. When you're a witness for something or you have a testimony to give on something and you're put on a stand in order to do so in a legal setting, you're there because you've seen something. You're there because you've experienced something. And it it is that seeing or that experiencing of something that now gives you the authority, the credence to be able to say something that's believable, that has authority, that has weight on it. Not everything that's said in terms of testimony or in terms of, of witness has equal weight. Put yourself in an imaginary situation. The Titanic has just gone down, but the reports are scattered and many people have not yet heard and, and you were in the grocery store and there in the little magazines on the rack as you were looking to buy some Tic Tacs, you happened to see the Inquirer Within speaking about the sinking of the Titanic and immediately you trust everything that the Inquirer Within says and so its testimony held a lot of weight. No, it's not true, but if you had a good source, someone who knew something of what had really happened, and they said to you, oh, I know, it's, you know, beyond the scope of imagining that Inquirer Within actually had this part right, Um, the Titanic did actually go down, I have a good source on it. Wow, holds more weight. And then someone who saw it happen comes to you and says, let me tell you about the Titanic and it going down. Just as you think of the gradations of those three varying testimonies that I've given to you, you're going to be less interested and hold less weight with the first one, and you're going to hold the most with the third. Because you know the person who saw it with their very eyes has the authority to be able to speak to you about what it is that actually happened. The Apostle Paul is in that third category, Unlike the Judaizers who had come there to Galatia probably to belittle parts or aspects of the message of Paul or the incompleteness of what it is that he brought. And it seems as if from the nature of the letter, you could look in verse 7 where he says some are causing you trouble. Some of these teachers who come in, they've caused you trouble. They seem to be indicating that the Apostle Paul is kind of peddling a secondhand message, Something that maybe he dreamed up on his own or gave his own little angle or slant on. But, you know, when Jesus was raised and he wasn't part of Jesus' original apostles, how can we be really sure if he had had an encounter with the risen Savior like he suggests? There seems to be things about Paul's message that are lacking and we want to fill in the gaps. Or maybe he's just an understudy of some of the other apostles. He's on the, you know, he's just one of the great helpers, assistants of the other apostles that come along. And yet he's tried to kind of almost flash a badge of apostleship when he goes places. And to be honest, he's speaking with an authority that's, uh, what's actually out of his league. Something of that kind of communication was happening in Galatia, and as the apostle Paul writes. Here, and to give his testimony, he is bedding down these allegations. This is why it's so important to him to say, verse 12, I have been commissioned to preach this gospel, and this gospel is not man's gospel, but Christ's gospel, and I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I received it from a revelation of Jesus. I didn't hear it as a rumor. I didn't read it in the Inquirer Within, I, as it were, heard from him and him alone. And I was transformed on the spot. And he commissioned me. And I have a firsthand eyewitness account on his authority to speak to you. It's fundamentally different. And so Paul says, until you you know my story and remember my story and you walk through its twists and turns, you're not going to understand the authority and the power and the authenticity of what it is that I'm bringing to you here in the gospel. And so I want to walk through Paul's testimony with you. And I want you to see that as he walks through this, he's giving a defense of his apostleship, the authority and the power of the gospel, but he's simultaneously giving to us a portrait of what it means to live a life that's full of testimony for Christ. There's a connection between Paul's testimony and your testimony, in other words. Part of what Paul is saying here, you've got to learn to say. And he's given you a story as he's given Jackson a certain story. There's not a pew in here that doesn't have a gospel story to share. So I want to look first at the past of the Apostle Paul. Paul says here in verses 13 and 14, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of man. Paul says, when I look back upon my life, I want you to see a negative and I want you to see a positive. I want you to see first that I was... I was destroying the very people that I am now seeking to preach their gospel to and catering to and serving. I was once there witnessing Stephen's martyr in Acts chapter 7. And I approved of what happened. In fact, after he was stoned, they took his clothes and they threw them at my feet. In Acts chapter 9, he's told that he's a fire-breathing, murderous threat towards those who claim to be Christians. That was who the apostle Paul was. He was so zealous for what he believed in, he wanted everything else to be destroyed. So it wasn't just a kind of pluralistic relativism of our day. You believe what you believe, it's all cool, you know, we're all great. Paul says, no, you will believe what I believe. Or we will seek as best we can to do away with you. It should sound a little bit like terrorism. There was a kind of militancy that was of the very nature of this Saul, Saul, before Acts chapter 9. But not just this, he was advancing. So it wasn't that he just wanted to destroy, but he says, hey, listen, I was advancing among many of my age. I was a young whippersnapper, and I was actually going further and deeper than those who were my elders, those who were older. I was a devotee of this glorious Judaism of which I believed everyone should be. This is who I was. The past. They don't want you to see the power. Look at the power of verse 15. But when he But when he. That's how it begins. Uh, that's, that's an essential mark in a testimony. There's a past and then there's a but. There's a contrast. Martin Lloyd-Jones once preached on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, but he only preached on the first two words of verse 1, which was, but God. He says every retelling of the gospel must have a but God. Here's the Apostle Paul's. But when he who had set me apart before I was born... But when he who had called me by his grace, but when he who was pleased to reveal his son to me, what's he speaking of here? Well, of course, he's speaking of the whole history of his personal life of redemption in the mind and the invasion of time. And the calling that God had in mind for him in terms of redemption, the whole scope. Before I was even born a figment of anybody's imagination, he had set me apart. The sovereignty of the choice of God. That he had indeed laid his affections upon Paul before there was a Paul, before there was a Saul. God had already earmarked him for this time. And he called him by his grace. That's what the theologians call effectual call. It's the kind of call that actually gets done what it's trying to get done. It's not the kind of a call that we parents sometimes deal with with our children, you know, when we call them and we call them and we call them and we call them and nothing happens. It's not that kind of call. It's a powerful call. It actually accomplishes that, which it extends to happen. And then notice what he says. In the midst of that call into grace that he had planned before I was born, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Don't you love the way Paul speaks of this and his conversion? He was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now, I want you to know when Paul first experienced the risen glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, it wasn't pleasurable, though God was pleased to do it. Struck blind, carried to Ananias, thought he was going to die, wished he had probably in the moment. And now as he's looking back on it, but God was pleased to reveal himself to me, could be translated in me. Which one? Both. He revealed his son to me and then he revealed the glory of his son in me. There was a conversion. He had moved from darkness into light. He had been transferred from the kingdom of the evil one to the kingdom of the beloved son. In this power of the gospel is where we begin to experience the pivot towards an entirely new life. Look at the way he puts, thirdly, purpose. Purpose. Verse 15b, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Friends, I want you to remember this. When the Lord does a work of grace in your life, he never stops short of calling you to a mission in life. Okay? Whenever the Lord does a work of grace in your life, He never stops short in calling you to a mission in life. The Apostle Paul, the language here, in order that the purpose, I love this from the Apostle Paul, the purpose for why He saved me was to preach, was to preach, was to share this glorious gospel that has been given to me. And I am to go among the Gentiles, the very people who I would consider dogs of the earth. Those are the people now through the transformation that God has brought about in my life. Those are the people whom God has called me to serve. When you begin to see a past that becomes captivated by a power, In the gospel, it begins to change the direction of your life into a radical purpose. And that's what's happened to the Apostle Paul. It's worth pausing for a minute to say, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have professed faith in him, if you know something of the transformation of the gospel, how has it repurposed your life? How do you experience the newness of walking in the life that is now Christ's life? He understands, the Apostle Paul understands. His life is no longer his own. He is entirely resigned to whatever it is that the mission of Christ is. He saved me in order that I might preach. I love love the fact that the Apostle Paul in this moment doesn't see salvation, his own personal salvation, as the end game of his salvation he sees his personal salvation as contributing to the ultimate glory of Christ to the nations that more and more would come to know the Lord Jesus in order that I might preach. Sometimes we will turn our salvation in upon ourselves in a kind of selfish and twisted kind of sense where we begin to kind of dwell so much, as it were, on God's love for me, for me personally. It's just so great. And we look at that and we never get to the place where we go, you know what's really really God's purpose to do with your life is so radically transformed and to be so approved of and experience his pleasure to such great degree that you are so focused on everyone else to serve them and care for them and you're motivated to make Christ known in every way imaginable and possible. That's when you really know that the grace of Christ is transforming you. When the in order that begins to manifest itself in your life. Now, he doesn't stop there. Verse seventeen. He says, "I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into, or went away into Arabia. Arabia, Arabia is a a wilderness, a, a desert. In a very real sense, it's it's very very similar to the call of." Of Moses at this point where Moses called by God out of Egypt ends up in a wilderness very very similar to the call of Jesus at the outset of his ministry where he is baptized and it is declared that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and immediately where does he go into the wilderness Arabia is a wilderness in fact some scholars believe it was the the geographical location and name for where Mount Sinai would have been In the time of the Apostle Paul. Could it be that the Apostle Paul actually takes the first season after his conversion. To retrace Old Testament history. And go back as it were to some of the places where God had revealed the glory of his salvation for people Israel. And began through communion with the Lord connecting deeply to the story that God had been telling from all eternity. Could it have been? I think it's possible. I think it's possible. The apostle Paul goes to Arabia, and it's a time of preparation. There's no doubt about it. There's not much there. He's gone into the silence. He's gone into the study. He's gone into communion with the Lord. Jeffrey Wilson said in his commentary, he didn't rush right off to Jerusalem to have a conference with men. Instead, he went into the wilderness to have communion with God. Friends, sometimes communion with God is its own training. You don't need another book. You don't need another seminar. You need to sit deeply in the presence of the Lord. We we lack a, a depth of communion with the Lord where we have a breadth of information, more information than we've ever had in human history. You want to know anything about anything... You can find it in our time, but would we mistake our time for being the, the one that is marked by deepest communion with God because we know so much? No. We we would mistake it that way. The Apostle Paul is in many ways not just preparing his mind, he's preparing his heart in relationship with the Lord. He goes from there into partnership with the disciples. He tells us that it's after this he goes to Jerusalem and he meets with Cephas for 15 days. That is Peter. It's here with the Apostle Paul, not trying to be merely an individualist, as as sometimes we are in our Christian faith and even in the way in which we live out our Christian faith. It's here where he goes and he sits at the feet of Peter. I mean, Peter knew all kinds of things with regards to the details of Jesus' life that Paul would not have been privy to. Paul didn't get to walk with Jesus for three years before his death and burial resurrection. It was important that he go and sit at the feet of Peter and, as it were, be uh, trained in the gospel and the history of the person of Jesus Christ. It was there where he built solidarity with Peter, built a partnership with him, both in message and in relationship. It was there where the richness of a gospel life most certainly began to work its way in to the life of the Apostle Paul. He's a disciple, an apostle among apostles. He's not trying to do this on his own. It's quite likely that the allegations of the Judaizers were, you know, the Apostle Paul, he's kind of rogue. He says he had this supernatural experience. And then he, he preached a couple times and then goes into Arabia. And then I know he's visited you here in Galatia, but we, I mean, he's never really hung out much in Jerusalem. He's not come through the proper channels Now, put yourself in Paul's shoes for a minute. If this was indeed the dialogue of the Judaizers, how strongly would Paul oppose such an idea, having just come out of Phariseeism, which was all about the proper channels, all about the credentials, all about the right boxes getting checked, all about the rules and the regulations, all about pleasing man, Could it be that the tone of the book of Galatians is as shrill as it is for the Apostle Paul because he sees now the one thing that has freed him and is freeing the world. Others are coming to pervert to make it a tradition of man. And instead of enjoying the grace and the freedom that comes in Christ, they're now turning it into a formal religion that will only serve the likes of hierarchies of men. Could it have been? One thing that we see is that the testimony of the Apostle Paul couldn't be quelled. Syria and Cilicia are hearing about it. These are not mainstream places. These are out-of-the-way kind of places. They're hearing the story. And you notice when they hear the story, they're, uh, they're totally astonished. Look at where this ends in verse 23. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of me. Jesus says, let your good works so shine before men that when they see them, they glorify God who is in heaven. It's an amazing testimony here. That when they hear the narrative, the testimony, the story, the Apostle Paul, their default assumption is only God could do that. There's no human explanation for that. there's There's no making sense of how someone who was once killing one of the lead Christians in Jerusalem in like a few days' time becomes one who is serving that same mission and now becoming the voice, the preacher for those in whom he sought to kill. Only only God can be given the glory for that. I believe, I believe that's a prayer that should be on the heart of every Christian. Lord, so let my life shine before men so that when they see it, they don't mistake it for me being good, for me being awesome, but they see God, and all they can say is like, you're a total mess, this is amazing. Only God could have done this, I mean, right? That's, that's what's happening here on the page of that, Don't you want that to be your prayer? That you, you don't stand before men, you don't do something, you're looking for the accolades of men, you're operating in what I believe is actually the context of the entire narrative that Paul is giving us here, and it's verse 10. Am I going to please men, or am I going to please God? Which one am I, which one am I serving? And if I've chosen to please men, there's no way I can be a servant of God. There's just no way. If I'm living for the various throne rooms that people set up in the world that say you're accepted, then there's no way I can serve Christ. You know, if I get the accolades where everyone says, you've really lived a full life and you've fulfilled the American dream, there's no way that I could be called a servant of Christ. If these are the motivations, they're actually at odds with the very essence of the call of the gospel. as part of what the apostle Paul is saying. If I'm still trying, notice how he put it, I was once trying. If I'm still trying to please man, then I'm not a servant of Christ. He, he once struggled with that very, very deeply. And he's been now cut loose from it. He's been cut free. He's now living in the joy of what it means to be transformed in Christ. Now, if you can think through this, how is it possible, (laughs) okay? Do you ever have sins of your past, or struggles in your past, come back and haunt you in the present? I do. They come back and they, you know, you begin to feel a little guilt or condemnation come in and and it just just completely saps your strength and and your, your joy. Now, I want to just, let's be Paul for just a minute. Paul gloried in and orchestrated the killing of Christians. Now, I, I'm going to venture, I'm going to go out here on a limb. I, I bet that's not true of most of you in this room. Now, I, I don't know all of you to a full degree, so I'm going to leave room for error Um, what that means is that some of what we would categorize as the very worst thing that someone could ever do, (laughs) Paul did. And he stands in the presence of the Lord in this book, glorying in his absolute and complete approval based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the eyes of God. And you're letting that lie you told, you know, five years ago still haunt you, or that. You see why Paul is so vigilant to not turn this into a man-pleasing venture, but it must be a God-pleasing venture. Here's Paul, that's the context in which he's in. And he is standing before the glory of the Lord, and he feels the pleasure of God approving him based upon the work. Of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it motivates him that everyone would experience the joy that he's experienced in Christ. Now, how can he know? How can he really know? How can you be free? How can we live into the freedom that Paul has here? Well, see, the Apostle Paul knew. He knew that the one man who was the only man, who was not merely a man, the Lord Jesus Christ was the only pleasing one in the sight of the Father. And he knew that he was the only one in whom the Father absolutely approved of without without any qualification whatsoever. And Paul knew that every disapproval that he had personally brought upon himself through his sin All the wrath and guilt and condemnation that he had accumulated from his birth forward. He knew all of the disapproval of his life had been placed upon the one approving Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew that it was nailed to the cross and he bears it no more, praise the Lord. He knows it. He knows it. He knows it in a way that has so radically transformed him that he is not living uh, by the patterns of sinful victimhood of the past of a family or, or sins of condemnation that come back and haunt. He's living into the reality of a gospel of what it would actually feel like if operationally we were functioning within it. And what that means is that person who just feels in your mind to be so far off from possible redemption may be a lot more closer to the kingdom than you can imagine. That yes, even the likes of you and me can be approved of in the sight of God because the one approving one took all of the disapproval and he paid for it on our behalf. All of the death that marks our life presently through suffering and sin and the death that we are we are heading towards right now as we take our breaths, that death and that ultimate death, he has conquered on your behalf. And when that becomes a place of great grace, you begin to realize that's life. That's where life is. And every time I've tried to turn this into something I do, it dies. And it kills me. But every time I look at the faith through the lens of what Christ has done, it throws me into life. You see, the here is what's amazing. There's an irony in this. In verse 10, he says, If I still am trying to please man, then I'm not a servant of Christ. You know, he could have said son. Which is kind of a benevolent feeling term. But he used servant. Well, hadn't Paul felt like a slave, a religious slave? Most of his life, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, checking the boxes, all of the rules and regulations, all of the dietary laws. and all of, he'd, been, he'd been living to please. He was a slave to formal religion, but now he's redeemed the word slave because he has found that when we are truly free is when we're enslaved to the one thing that can free us, which is the gospel when you bind yourself to the gospel and you give yourself over to Christ, what begins to happen is you begin to experience the freedom that you were designed for. You know, Bob Dylan was right. We're going to serve somebody. Either Satan or the Lord, but it matters which one. The outcome is really different. And the service of the Lord is actually the freedom you're designed for. And the Apostle Paul was, he had the gospel wind at his back. And he was going from place to place in the freedom of its joy. Have you known the power of the gospel? Is there a past and a power that's invaded your life? Is there a purpose that you sent since now that the Lord is drawing you into? This is the calling that we've been placed before us in Christ and it's a joyous one. It's a a light and easy yoke. And as we take it up and as we walk in it, we experience the joy of the Lord. So I invite you friends, trust in Jesus today and for the hundredth time and the thousandth time, trust in Jesus today and let it motivate you all the way as you drive yourself towards His glorious face. Let's pray to that end right now. Father in heaven, I ask you, please have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. We've turned your good things into other ways in which to enslave, rather than enslaving ourselves to the gospel, which is the one thing that will free us. Help us in this and free us. Help us see Jesus. Help us to to love Him, and find in Him our all in all. And as we do, Lord, release us more deeply into Your purpose, that the testimony of our life might be that they saw what the Lord did in us, and they glorified Him. That's our prayer. Hear it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.